You're listening to Can I Say That, a project created by Brenna Blaine in hopes of engaging culture as Christians in a post-Christian world. Here, we hope to ask the questions we sometimes ponder, but rarely have a chance to ask in the church. Jesus said, he is the way and the truth and the life. So we hope we can engage truth together and in extension, know the eternal life he offers. Hey, you guys, it's Brenna Blaine. Last time we talked, I shared a little bit about the book project that I'm working on in next episode. So not this one, the next one that we have. I will be getting to share a really detailed and exciting update on how that is going. And so I just want to stop and say thank you to those of you who have been praying for this book and for this project and for this ministry. I completely believe it is because other people have been faithful in their prayers that the Lord really moved mountains with the way things are going with this book. And so I'm just super excited and super grateful to you, our online community, who has been so steadfast and faithful. Speaking of our next episode, I'm really excited to be doing something a little bit different than what we normally do. Obviously, on the show, we usually pick a subject. We interview someone who is an expert on the subject or who has experience with that subject. But this next episode, we're going to try doing something a little bit fun. We're going to do an Ask Me Anything, and that's an opportunity for you to send in questions that you have maybe about this ministry, maybe about podcasting, maybe about theology, biblical studies, whatever it may be, you can send it in. And what I'm really excited about is usually when I do ask me anything on Instagram, it's just me answering. And I have a very limited experience and I can only share from my own perspective. So a really good friend of mine named Lindsay Ponder also just happens to be the associate producer of the Bible project. And so she has agreed to come on the podcast and help me answer some of these difficult theology questions that you all have. And I'm just really excited for the conversation. I think it will be fun. I think it will be interesting to do a format that we don't normally do here on this podcast. And so if you're wondering, how the heck do I send in questions? There's two ways you can do that. The first way is you can follow me on Instagram. It's Brenna Blaine or at bun on my head. And I will put up when we are going to do the podcast, you'll have an opportunity to send in those questions. Or if you don't have Instagram, you can email me your question at brennablain at gmail.com. So B-R-E-N-N-A-B-L-A-I-N at gmail.com. And we will make sure to get those questions into the mix before we record our episode. All right, enough about that. Today, we are hearing from Jeremy Jenkins. Jeremy Jenkins is the executive director of All Things All People, where he explores the darkest places and worldviews and equips Christians to engage them with the gospel. He is also one of the pastors at Element Church in Forest City, North Carolina, and an adjunct professor of religion at Gardner-Webb University. I am super, super excited for you to hear from him as he shares with us today the differences between Christianity and LDS or Mormonism. Okay, so today we are talking about Mormonism. And whenever I have conversations with people, or even when I ask the people to send in questions on Instagram, by far, 
we got three questions that were asked the most. And so today, instead of going into a hundred different questions, I'm just going to ask these three top questions and then have you dive into those details. So first of all, for those wondering and for myself, what exactly is Mormonism? What is LDS? What does that encompass when someone says, I am a Mormon? What does that mean? I suppose that question could be answered like quite a few different ways. But basically, you know, and you you distinguish to like there's Mormonism and then there's LDS. And why do we use those interchangeably? What we top typically consider to be Mormon is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they go by Mormon and 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 they actually interestingly enough within the last 3 or 4 years they they decided to cease referring to themselves as Mormons. And so the the preferred way uh, for them to refer to themselves is as Latter-day Saints. And so, you know, we use that uh, abbreviation LDS uh, quite a bit more in the last few years. But this is the church that Joseph Smith founded. Um, Joseph Smith, this is a uniquely American faith. Um, Joseph Smith was born in rural Vermont in 1805, and he and his family moved uh, to a place called Palmyra, New York. Uh, his family were Presbyterians. Uh, some people say they were Methodists, but he grew up in and around the aftermath of the Second Great Awakening in the Northeastern United States. And Joseph Smith, like a lot of other people at that time, were really disenfranchised with like popular religion. A lot of the division that they saw within uh, Protestantism, a lot of, you know, a lot of division theologically. Um, and so he was very unsettled with this. And according to church tradition, when he was 14 years old, he went into the woods there in upstate New York to pray about which of these various like churches he should be a part of. And there he had a vision uh, in that vision, which is foundational to the Mormon faith. He claimed to see two personages or two peoples. One was God, the father, and the other was Jesus. And Smith took that opportunity to ask them which of these groups he should join. And they answered that he should join none of them because all of them were wrong. They were all apostate. All of their creeds were an abomination and their believers corrupt. Three years later, the church says that Smith received another vision. Uh, in this vision, the angel Moroni told Smith of two golden plates buried under a hill there in Palmyra, New York. Uh, in 1827, uh, he found these plates. He, he translated them using two reading crystals, uh, allegedly, because they were written in like ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, and out of this came what we now know as the Book of Mormon, which contains the story of lost Israelites who migrated to America in the 6th century BC and were killed in battle in AD 428. And um, Smith essentially used this as the launching point to start this new church movement, which originally was actually called the Church of Christ in 1838, he changed the name to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They had a fairly like tumultuous history in their early life, going from the northeastern part of the United States to, to Ohio, moving from Ohio to Missouri. And then everywhere they went, they, they, extreme, they, they, they met extreme persecution ending for a time in Southern Illinois. And then after experiencing great persecution there and actually the death of Joseph Smith, they made their way to the salt flats of Utah. And they essentially actually founded the state of Utah there in Salt Lake City in Provo. And now there they exist as this, what really is um, 
a, a huge church movement, especially for, you know, here in the United States that now, you know, we all know because most of us have, have experienced like, you know, LDS missionaries at our door, you go to a hotel now, and it's not uncommon to see the book of Mormon there right next to the, the Protestant or the Catholic version of the Bible. And so, yeah, so like that's, that's kind of where it's all come from. And as I know, Brenna, we're going to get into, they have quite a few distinctives that make them not just different from Orthodox historic Christianity, but not accepted as part of Orthodox Christianity. But one thing I always like to tell people too, is this is also the time in American history where uh, a similar time where Jehovah's Witnesses uh, came out of, this is also a similar time where the Millerite Adventist movement was born, which is where we get the Seventh Day Adventists, which is by no means uh, considered a, a you know cult or cult-like, uh, quite as much as uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or um, LDS. But this religious fervor that was coming out of the Northeast at this time sparked a lot of movements, and many, if not most, of them died out. But what we have today is you know a few of them, namely chief among them is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is um, a huge part of American culture now. So that's, you know, to answer the question, what is Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? That's that's like their history in, you know, three or four minutes. I want to get into what you're just talking about. It's interesting to me, every time I have a conversation with someone who is LDS, they'll always kind of group in what I believe, because I always say, well, I'm a Christian. They'll say, yeah. So we're both Christians, and that's interesting to me, but I also pause because I know some basic differences between the two, but I know there are so many. So what what are those differences? There are so many that to try and list them categorically in you know podcast format is like, you know, we'd be here a really long time, but I'll definitely highlight the the most important ones that I think more Christians need to become aware of because you know, that sentiment that you just expressed, like when you are talking to an LDS missionary or a friend, I think if we're doing our faith, you know, the right way, whatever that is, like, we're not constantly looking to exclude people. You know, I'm like a charismatic Baptist type, you know, person, right? But like, I'm also like fairly grouped in with like a lot of different denominations. Like, I enjoy having friendships with Presbyterians and Pentecostals, charismatics, you know, so on and so on. So it's not like, it's not like we need to set out and say, hey, who's a Christian and who's not, and constantly be running people through this this filter. But I think when we see some of the egregious claims and differences by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, going back to Joseph Smith and then his successor, Brigham Young, I think more Christians need to be familiar with this kind of stuff. Because the thing I like to start with is, of course, we have different scriptures. So LDS scriptures is the Protestant Bible. And they typically use the King James Version, and they'd say that um, they use the Christian Bible as long as it's translated correctly. But then with that, they have the Book of Mormon, which you know I already mentioned. But then they have two more books. It's Doctrines and Covenants, um, which is a collection of teachings and sayings of Joseph Smith, and then another one called Pearl of Great Price, which is uh, somewhat similar. And this is the LDS canon. And so right away, the lay Christian, you know, their ears should perk up when they hear that type of stuff, because much of the Christian Bible in LDS thinking is interpreted through the lens of the Book of Mormon doctrines and covenants and pearl of great price. And then on top of that, 
one of the biggest differences functionally is that there in Salt Lake, church leadership, namely uh, a group called the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, these are men who have been elected to, to serve in this church leadership, and they are seen to have apostolic authority over over the church. And so twice a year, and actually I was I was there at what's called General Conference uh, last spring with ATAP, and at General Conference twice a year, the church leadership speaks to the church, and most of it's encouragement and sermon-type messages, but very commonly there's there's essentially new revelation, and they hold that new revelation from the presidency of the church to be on par with scripture. And so when you understand how and and what they use to determine truth, you can understand how we'd get to the point where they have so many other different beliefs. And like just to just to run through a few that most people probably don't know is the 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 most startling one to me is that LDS have a completely different what we would call like theology proper or just doctrine of God. Latter-day Saints believe that God the Father or Heavenly Father as they usually call him is a man with flesh and bones just like me and you. And they believe that their heavenly father is an exalted man with a physical body um, of flesh and bone who lived a faithful life as a saint uh, in a different sphere of existence. So just to simplify it, essentially like a different universe, so to speak. And he and a wife, a heavenly mother, um, lived these lives as faithful saints and were uh, ascended to the highest level of heaven. Latter-day Saints believe in three levels of heaven. And at the highest level, the celestial kingdom are where faithful saints go. And after being there and continuing to be perfected and exalted, they essentially become gods and they are given their own spheres of existence to form and create. And the way they populate those, those spheres of existence is through some form of spiritual procreation between a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. And that's where we come in. And so they would believe that humans are spiritually pre-existed spiritual offspring of the heavenly father and heavenly mother. And the firstborn was Jesus. And so they, they in turn, while they also have a completely different view of heaven of the heavenly father, and then there's this belief in this heavenly mother who, you know, coincidentally is never heard from and very, very rarely ever spoken of. Um, but they also have a hugely different belief in Jesus being that he was a, he was a created being. And so Joseph Smith actually quite famously was quoted as saying, if the veil were rent today, or if the veil were tore today, and the great God who holds this world in orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power was to make himself visible, I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form. And so from that, and then the collection of teachings on Jesus, we see that, of course, they're not Trinitarian. And Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are seen as three separate entities. And so, you know, so we don't, you know, like we can, we can kind of like stop there for a minute. Like, you know, you don't really have to go much further than that to see, like, you know, like I tell people, like, just if we stopped there and I didn't tell you anything else, you could imagine how different every other doctrine is now. If, if those, if those few things, you know, are believed. And so, so yeah, so I mean, and, and you know, with that start, you know, kind of starting there, we begin to see the the fractures between LDS and the rest of Christendom, and so how they view 
um, humans is completely different and the, the, the work of Jesus, the res, the, the redemptive work of Jesus is completely different going so far as to say too, like they, they do believe in like these three various levels of, of heaven, the terrestrial kingdom, the celestial kingdom and the celestial kingdom. They really don't believe anybody's going to, to hell. They believe in something called the outer darkness, which is where like Satan and the absolute like worst of the worst uh, spiritual beings are going. But they more or less believe that everybody is going to make it to one of these three levels of heaven. And even after death, you can continue to be exalted and perfected. They reference uh, the teachings of Paul, where he references the baptism for the dead, which is of itself a fairly obscure passage um, that most you know Protestant Christians don't necessarily know how to interpret. But they take it to mean that in their temples, which the temple is at the center of, of LDS, you know, faith and worship in there in the temple, they practice what's called baptism for the dead, which is a proxy baptism. So they, they keep extensive records of family and they go back in their records. And when they find somebody who was not a member of the church, they go and might offer themselves as a proxy baptism for that family member. And they believe that wherever that family member is in this, you know, stratified heaven, that that person might be then given the opportunity to accept the faith there in the afterlife and thereby, you know, become more like God and eventually make it to the celestial kingdom. And, you know, interestingly, I was just in Salt Lake and Provo um, earlier this year for general conference, like I said, and we went to this family, this family research area that they have many of the most famous, like ancestry.com 23andme. Um, a lot of these companies that like people use to research their families. A lot of those are, are owned by Mormons because they're the only ones who have extensive enough family records to even have businesses like that because since their founding, they've, they've done that type of stuff. So, so th- that, that's like a small sample of the extensive differences. And then when we, you know, when we begin to really think through, okay, like faith and life and the temple and the priesthood and things like that, we begin to see that the, the differences run very, very deep. And the only reason why most American Christians are tempted to kind of, you know, I, I hear it all the time. People will be like, Hey, my neighbor is a Latter-day Saint. And they really seem like they believe in Jesus and they're really great people and like they're good parents and all that stuff. Why should I tell them that they're not a Christian? And it's like, first of all, like telling somebody that they're not a Christian is telling them that they're a bad parent, you know, that they're not a good business owner or like, you know, whatever, they're not a good citizen. But I think it's interesting that a lot of what we see in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that causes us to be unsettled at teaching or preaching the truth at them is because they look so much like us because they were born out of American culture. If you took away and you just took their theology and you took their their doctrine and put it next to historic Christian doctrine, you would say Islam is closer to Orthodox Christianity than much of the Latter-day Saints teachings. And so I think it's important, despite the fact that it can be quite painful, to you know, to to call those those clarifications to, to 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 light and to distinguish between the two. So so yeah, that's that's like a basic primer. And when you talk about just like who is God, and and you see that much difference in the answer, that really tells us everything we need to know. 
I want to go back. You touched on apostolic authority. I grew up doing musical theater, so I get much of my education about like the Mormon belief from the Book of Mormon musical. Something that they touch on in that show that I think is quite startling, and I believe it's true, so you'll have to correct me if it's not, but apostolic authority, how in the 1970s prior to that the lds belief was that they did not like people of color is that correct oh yeah big time and that's very well documented for sure so and and really i think joseph smith i think he was like fairly benign towards towards people of color but brigham young is like well documented as having been quite racist regularly is quoted there's there's actually within even protestantism for a long time there was this faulty teaching that uh, africans had been cursed that the three sons of noah had the curse of cain carried through to the curse of of noah's sons and so they, the the latter-day saints were a big part of like seeing that kind of teaching continue but brigham young like said something like i'm looking at right right here he said if the white man who belongs to the chosen seed mixes his blood with the seed of cain which brigham young referred to african-americans as the seed of cain the penalty under the law of god is death on the spot and, and this is you know disputed by many latter-day saints but it's it's well recorded these types of these types of quotes and so for a long time that that was a part of of the church and and it wasn't that they wouldn't let african americans into the church but they were not allowed to be part of the priesthood and so there's priests at the temple level and then the you know the the presidency the quorum of the 12 you know in the 72 above that so they it wasn't even just that they weren't allowed in that upper stratosphere they also just weren't allowed in the temple either and so yeah and that that ended like you said towards the end of the 20th century. And then also to, you know, Utah, not the most multi-ethnic place, you know, like, um, and this is largely due to the influence of the church, you know, so, so yeah, they, they've had quite their, quite their number of problems with racism and things like that, which I mean, all of us have, but, but the problem for the Latter-day Saints was it was institutionalized and it was institutionalized so so much longer than most other religious institutions, which was kind of alarming. So when you have apostolic authority and new revelation, what would people in the LDS leadership say to those who say, doesn't this just make for a deeply unstable faith? Well, of course, you know, of course they would, they would say no, they would disagree. And they, you know, they look at the continued revelation that happens within the context of, um, you know, the Latter-day Saint world as God continues speaking to his people and to his creation and, you know, changing things, you know, for the better. So an example, a very famous example is polygamy. It's very well known that early on, in the Latter-day Saints history, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the church leaders were practicing polygamy and they were marrying many, many, many women. They would say for the purpose of getting these women essentially to heaven because it was difficult or even impossible for a woman at that time to be seen as able to go to the celestial kingdom if she wasn't eternally 
bonded to a husband, but also we know that they had relations with all of the, many of these women, you know? And so that practice went on for quite a while and the church at a certain point ended the, the practice and, and it was in the form of, you know, a new revelation. And whereas those of us on the outside would say, see, like, don't you guys see that, you know, you have an imperfect revelation if it has to be corrected. Well, they would quickly shoot back that, you know, Abraham and many of the patriarchs had multiple wives. And they would say it wasn't that God promoted those things, but he permitted them because they were happening within the context of a culture, you know, that already practiced it. And so they would say that, you know, every religion, and they're somewhat, they're somewhat correct, you know, that they would say that pretty much every religion you know, has um, what we call abrogation, which is going back and changing a teaching. I think what what is difficult for outsiders to understand is like abrogation in the Old and the New Testament happened over the course of thousands of years. And in most of that stuff, you know, we don't see God endorsing polygamy. We don't see in God, God endorsing slavery. We see him simply working in the context in which it exists. But it seems like Many of the teachings that at one point, right, the the institutionalized racism, the institutionalized polygamy, these were things that were not just like looked aside or, or, or you know, like begrudgingly permitted, but these were things that were actually hugely integral to LDS thinking and theology. So while they, you know, would rebut the charge that it causes instability, because I think a lot of LDS, you know, take quite a bit of comfort actually in having living prophets. You know, when we, when I was in Salt Lake, the few conversations I was able to have with Latter-day Saints was they love these guys. Like they, they really admire them and cherish them and, and hang on every word. And I think they look at us and they would actually say, you know, your faith is actually quite stale because it isn't able to change. It isn't flexible. It isn't something that constantly is renewed for the for the world it exists in. And so, so yeah, I, I mean, of course, I think that the charge against continued revelation is that it implies an inadequacy of the old revelation. But th- of course, they don't feel that way, and 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 never have, and likely, you know, to, to you know, as, at least as far as the church is concerned, never will. And like I said, they hang on every word of these prophets. I was walking around Brigham Young's campus during general conference um, with a friend of mine who had come with me and we didn't see a person. Like, I mean, this is a campus that is, you know, huge. And we were walking around during one of the general conference sessions and we, we didn't see a soul because they were all in their rooms watching general conference on their computer. TVs or their phones. And now, you know, of course, some of them probably didn't care, but they weren't, they weren't going to be the ones walking around campus while, while the prophets were talking. And so this is, yeah, it's a huge part of Latter-day Saint living that I think many Christian outsiders just, just don't understand. You mentioned stale faith. I have never met an LDS kid in my life who hasn't gone on to do their two-year mission. How come the LDS church how do they raise such committed followers? At the center of LDS life is the family. I mean, th- th- that's one thing, you know, that I've known quite a few Latter-day Saints and in, in here in the last few years with the work that I do with ATAP, I-, I-, I talk to them quite a bit. And, you know, you'll you'll hardly ever meet a Latter-day Saint who, at least like an active one, who isn't really, really close with their family because 
the family is the family is at the center of Latter Day Saint salvation, so to speak. Right? They actually have like sealing ceremonies for families where families will be able to exist into eternity together if they are all sealed together in the temple and if they are all faithful saints. And so it's not like a, a far-fetched idea then, you know, taking that into account, but then also to just like the, what I imagine is not probably mostly a positive peer pressure, but the idea that these kids grow up and it is almost an expectation like, Hey, your dad went on a mission. Your mom went on a mission. Every kid in your church goes on a mission. When you graduate high school, before you go to BYU, you're going to go on a mission. And, you know, for guys, I think it's two years. And for young women, I think it's 18 months. And yeah, I mean, they get sent all over the world. They get trained. Every single one of them goes to Provo, uh, to the missionary training center before they go. And, you know, those conversations that you have with them on your doorstep, as long as, you know, you don't slam the door in their face, which I'm a firm believer, you shouldn't. They are, they are highly trained. And, and, you know, much of what they say comes from a script, but most of these kids are kids that grew up in very tight-knit Mormon families, a large percentage of them from Utah or the Mountain West area. And so, yeah, they go all over the world. They learn languages. They And it's actually, they're not paid. They have to raise money to go do it. And it's a really hard way of life. They get paired up with one other person and that's that's what they do for 18 months to, to you know, to two years. And it is amazing to see. In a lot of ways, I wish that, you know, the evangelical movement was half as successful at sending young people to the mission field as, as, as the LDS, but it comes from a works-based mindset. And it also comes from a societal mindset that this is what everybody else does. So you're going to do it too. So, so yeah, but it is, it is an amazing thing to witness. So because of them sending so many young people out, even if you're not in close proximity to someone who goes to an LDS church, you will most likely come into contact with an LDS believer because they're just so great at sending them out and sending them. I remember the last apartment we lived in, we had four sets of LDS missionaries come through our neighborhood in two years. So I'm wondering, and this is probably the biggest question of all of them, what are some effective ways that Christians can engage in meaningful conversations with LDS missionaries, not in maybe like an argumentative way, but in ways that we can both be gracious and kind, but also offer them, hey, here's here are some things that maybe will point you towards truth. The first thing you mentioned, the fact that a lot of people, especially if you run in you know, evangelical circles, like you probably don't have Mormon friends, like unless you might live in the the mountain West area or maybe a larger city where there's a lot of diversity. But like, as you mentioned, they are somewhere near you because they send missionaries to, you know, pretty much every, pretty much every neighborhood in the country. And I would actually go so far as to say too, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I was studying the church, the LDS church for a project I was doing. And I had actually never talked with a Mormon missionary before, which is, you know, which is for me hilarious because I spent so much time teaching on them and, and things like that. And I was doing research and I was on the LDS website and I saw a button on the website that said, request a meeting with a Mormon missionary or with a missionary. And I was just like, oh yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. You know? And so I, I clicked the button and I filled out a form and the next day someone called me kind of like, you know, hey, what do you want to talk to them about? I, I, I was pretty honest. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I, I just want to talk to them. And, 
So these two young ladies called me who, who were in my area and, you know, same thing I told them. And I was pretty even more transparent with them of just saying like, Hey, actually I'm a pastor, but you know, you guys are in my area and you're not from here. So I just like to meet you and whatever. And they actually brought another person from their church. I think that there was probably some like accountability stuff, just given that they were meeting with a a man and, and we actually met in my office at the church where I pastor and a friend of mine was there. So it was actually a big, a, a whole big thing. But so, so I'd stop there and say, I don't endorse everybody doing the type of stuff that I do, but if somebody's listening to this and they're like, man, I'm really, I have a lot of passion for sharing my faith specifically with people like Latter-day Saints, but you know that, yeah, they just don't knock on my door for some reason. Like you can actually seek them out and there's probably a ward, what they call a, a local ward um, somewhere in your neighborhood. I'm in the buckle of the Bible belt here in North Carolina and we're, I'm sitting in my office at church right now and it would take me two minutes to drive to the local ward here in Forest City, North Carolina. So yeah, just to accentuate your point, they are all around us. But when they knock on your door, when it's a friend at work, if you go to the website and request a meeting, like you mentioned, there are a lot of guys and the circle, you know, you know, Brenna, you and I have become friends because of social media. And it's, I, I love that. But I also know of quite a few people who have made quite the living on posting videos of like arguing with Jehovah's Witnesses and and LDS. And And I would actually stop and say that stuff can be valuable, right? If you're an apologist, I get, you know, there is a time and a place to debate and there is a time and place to have really high level discussions and try and win people over through that winning mindset. But I would go so far as to say most of us are not apologists and we are not textual critics. We do not understand Greek and Hebrew. And most people actually don't know that much about Latter-day Saint thinking and theology. So to, to really address your question is I would say, be so familiar with your faith, with, with what the Bible teaches that when you invite them in, that's a big thing. Like it, like one of my biggest pet peeves is when somebody calls, they think that I'll be proud of them because of ATAP or whatever. And like people will call me or they'll DM me on Instagram and they'll be like, Hey, I thought of you today. Jehovah's witness came to my door or LDS missionary came to my door. And I said this little snarky thing and I, and I closed the door and I was like, that 100% like I don't know how you've gotten that from my ministry but that's 100% what not to do if you're a Christian. I think Christians should be the most welcoming, should be the warmest ones and if you you know if if you don't feel comfortable inviting them into your house which I completely understand in the world that we live in like like set up a time to sit down and meet with them. They don't drink um interestingly enough even as well versed as I am in Latter-day Saints like I always make the mistake of inviting them to coffee because they don't, most of the time they don't drink coffee and hot tea, um, which is a, a church teaching uh, that goes goes back a long ways. But especially if you live in a place, well, actually, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, Brenda, because I live in a super Christian part of the country and the LDS missionaries tell me, oh yeah, everybody slams the door in our face. And I know that, you know, you, you being in the Pacific Northwest, like not quite as Christian as the Bible Belt. But I would imagine that even there, people are still not that open to talking to people who have knocked on their door. Like, what do you think the sentiment is up there? Oh, for sure. I don't think people want to be bothered by anyone, but I think that's very Pacific Northwest. I I think people are pretty specifically cold here. And, 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 I, and I think if you look at every region of the United States, 
I think that's always the outcome, even for different reasons, right? It might be different in Pacific Northwest than it is the Southeast, but these are people who are knocking on doors and actually here lately, they've started doing like Facebook messaging a lot. But I I think that if you are living out a, a vibrant and active faith, that when you start talking and you ask good questions, like that's a big thing that I talk about with ATAP is like learn to ask them, like, just be like, so what, what do you believe about God? And they're going to start by saying, oh yeah, probably the same thing as you. And it's like, I don't think you have to know exactly everything they believe about God. But if, like I've said, you know enough to know that they do actually have big differences, like press them on that. It's not rude to press someone to tell the truth and be like, well, I don't know. I've, I've heard a lot of people say that we have differences in God. What do you believe about God? And then if they dance around it, which they might, but they probably won't then say, okay, well, that's interesting. Here's what I believe, you know, and here's why. And, um, Latter-day Saints are not very argumentative. Like they're, they're actually fairly, timid. I mean, usually because they're so young, the missionaries, at least Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are actually fairly notorious for like, they'll argue with you, you know, but usually LDS are are fine to kind of say, okay, well, I can see why you believe that, but this is not what we believe. But at the end, they'll, they'll encourage you to pray for wisdom and pray that God would illuminate your understanding. So, so, you know, I, I would say be willing to meet with them and then actually be willing to meet more than once with them. I actually had a great conversation with uh, a guy named Dr. Travis Kearns, who is one of the the leading evangelical scholars on the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He, he had planted a church there in Salt Lake. He had done a ton of work, um, at Southwestern, uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. And I asked him kind of this question because I'm really not a good evangelist. Like I do the stuff that I do with ATAP more from like an anthropological type like way of going. I'm, I'm not a great evangelist. And so um, I asked him and he said, every chance you get, help them understand that your faith does not need temples and it does not need priests and it does not need works because what Jesus did is a completed work. And that is something that they do not have. You know, they need temples and they need priests and they need their works because they believe Jesus bought us immortality with the cross and resurrection, but he did not buy us a complete salvation. And so one thing he said too, is like, he'll ask missionaries, what's one thing that you really love about your faith? And I think that's a great question because it takes away like the man on the street, I'm going to argue with you kind of sentiment. And you actually take an interest in them. And I'm a firm believer, you know, that you are only as interesting as you are interested. And I think they can pretty well smell when you're just having a conversation to argue, you know? And so ask the question, um, Dr. Kern says, what's one thing about your faith that you love? And he said that usually they answer something akin to, it works for me. You know, it it makes me happy or it works for me. And then of course, in turn, you say, okay, well, here's what I love about my faith. And then you share the gospel with them. You share that completed gospel, the gospel that has a period at the end of it. And, and you share with them the finished work of Christ has done for you. And it's not that it always makes you happy. It's not that it always works for you, but the fact that you can know God and be known by him and you don't need to earn anything else. And then also too, there's a very, very real reality that, you know, at the end of this life, there is judgment. What you do will not matter as much as who, whose you are, you know? And so it is important to know the real Jesus, not the one that has been manufactured. 
by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so, so I think, but, and I would encourage anybody who's listening, who is interested in this type of lifestyle of like meeting with people and things like that is be willing to meet more than once. Like they're going to be there, you know, the way that LDS missionaries usually works, especially when they're here in the United States is that they're not going to be, those two missionaries are not going to be in your town for the entirety of their, their mission. They, they're probably going to change from town to town within that one region. And so, you know, the missionaries that you meet with tomorrow are likely going to be in your town for three to six months. And then there's going to be new missionaries. And, and I just think like, how great would it be if as those missionaries are changing out, changing in, if you develop a relationship with, with them to where, when the new ones are coming in, maybe they might say, Hey, there's this Christian woman. She's, you know, she's a charismatic or she's a Baptist, you know, whatever, but she's really nice to us. And she's probably going to cook for you. And we've had a lot of great conversations with her. You're probably not going to convert them on your couch, but you might leave a lasting impression and plant a seed that at some point, maybe they're laying up at night. Maybe it's later on down their life. Like the Lord, ultimately the Holy spirit is the one that does the, the regenerating. And so we can just plant small seeds of truth small gospel seeds that, that might germinate and become something, um, that if the Lord grows it. So, so that's, you know, I'm not a big systems guy. I got, you know, there's a lot of people who, who do offer like really great advice. Um, but for me, it's more of a heart thing of like, I genuinely want to talk to them. And I would say, if that's not true about you, like, I, I don't think you need to beat yourself up because I'm not naturally that way. Like, I'm a fairly closed off person. And so like, I think the Lord can make us loving and inviting enough to be attractive to people who are far from him. And we need to pray that way. You know, Lord, I don't just want to see them the way that you see them. I want to treat them the way that you want to treat them. And, um, and yelling at them on the street is usually not that way. Um, like I said, it it can be useful at times, but usually for the rest of us, a, a soda on your couch or sitting out on your patio or a cold bottle of water if they're knocking on your door in the middle of the summer, whatever it might be, is going to go so far in helping them understand every other door in this town might be slammed in your face, but this one won't. And it's because of who I know to be true, truly God. And it's not just that I'm nicer. It's that I genuinely am tapped into the life-changing transformative gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know him too. And so that, that to me is, is how you go about it. Jeremy, I know people who are listening are wondering like, who is this guy? How do I learn more about him and in your ministry? So before we end, could you just share a little bit about what ATAP is and how people can find you online? I don't know if, if, if I'm as interesting as Brenna Blaine and, and, and I love so much what you do. And, you know, you're one of my favorite follows on Instagram and this weird, like Instagram influencer friend world that I have. But if any of your followers are interested, I'm a pastor, I'm a professor, but then what I do with ATAP is, and it's really a, a big passion of mine, is we explore the darkest places and worldviews and equip Christians to engage them with the gospel. And so we do a lot of that on Instagram, at allthings.allpeople. That's probably the best entry point um, for it. And that's mostly just because that's the only social media that I like. And I, I, I hate Twitter. 
I, I don't, I don't have TikTok on my phone. So one day the, the, our interns and, and whatnot will win, win me over to that. But for the time being, Instagram is the best place. And then all things, is our website. We post a lot of articles there and actually going into 2023, we're really praying that the Lord's going to see through some of the visions he's given us, which is a lot of training materials. Like I'm about to film um, an online course called exploring and engaging the world's religions. And then we'll be producing a ton of training material because we don't just want to talk about it. We want to be about it. And so, so yeah, so that's kind of the biggest things, you know, uh, and we just got back from India a couple weeks ago and we're putting out content material on that right now. We're about to go research this, this cult that's come out of South Korea called the World Mission Society Church of God. So, so I tell people all the time quite facetiously, but my goal in life is to just kind of be like the Christian Indiana Jones and just go off and do exciting things, but come back. And whether that's, you know, a cult down the street or, you know, somewhere halfway around the world, but come back and help Christians understand what the rest of the world believes about God and gods and help them engage them with the gospel because we really are surrounded by darkness and the only true light comes from the gospel and we need to do a better job at reaching those in the most difficult places and worldviews and unfortunately despite the fact that they often are the best business people and they are some great parents and they are some wonderfully nice people the true jesus christ of latter-day saints is is a is a dark worldview and, and so I appreciate you having me on and I appreciate you making this a centerpiece of, you know, your podcast for this month, because yeah, I just think we need to do a better job at just helping people reach people like these Latter-day Saints. So yeah, I would love to, I would love to have any, can I say that Brenda Blaine disciples come, come follow us at ATAP. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the conversation. Brenda and I hope you found it both helpful and relevant. If you have any questions or thoughts, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at Can I Say That Show. We almost always use Instagram stories to ask questions pertaining to the next episode leading up to the recording. So keep a lookout for such in case you have any burdening questions on that topic and for the opportunity to potentially have your questions asked. Either way, thanks again for listening. And as Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, test everything, hold fast what is true.